All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Paul writes, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in His presence. But of Him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that... As it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So we are obviously still continuing our study through 1 Corinthians. Um, as I was just counting a little, little while ago, this is our fourth lesson now. So chapter 1 and 4 lessons. Not, not bad. Not bad. Uh, I could probably do a little better. The shorter chapters, I can get them done sooner. But... Uh, a lot of meat in this chapter, though. And like I said, I believe it sets the stage. And last week, we looked at verses 18 through 25 as the Apostle Paul here begins to bring the teaching of the Gospel to play in the, in the issues that are going on here in the church of Corinth. He brings the Gospel to bear on their lives as they, this church is racked with division. This church is racked with schisms. This extremely gifted and blessed church, which Paul makes no qualms to mention earlier in the chapter. He says, you are um, enriched in everything by Him in all utterance and knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. So he acknowledges the, the great blessing and in the, in the, in how gifted this church is. But they are racked with problems. They have internal schisms. They have lack discipline. They have... Tolerance. They tolerate sin in their midst, and they have uh, they exhibit a theological immaturity, and so on and so forth. And some of this was brought to Paul's attention by a letter written by the church itself to Paul to answer some questions. So this idea of they weren't maybe they weren't as theologically developed as they could have been. They had many questions, so they they wrote a letter to Paul to answer them. But then some of this was brought to Paul's attention by some Christians in Chloe's household who were concerned by some of the issues you see going on in the church. The schisms, the lack of discipline, all these things going on in the church. So they send a report to Paul to bring to his attention the problems going on in this church. And here, again, like I mentioned last time, and I've mentioned probably the time before that too, you know, we're looking at this in small chunks, but we have to understand this is part of a bigger context. And what we're seeing here that starts in verse 10, the body of the letter starts in verse 10 of chapter 1. And from that point on, all the way to the end of chapter 4, all of that is talking about divisions in the church. Paul is really hammering this point with them that the church of Jesus Christ ought not to be torn apart by your worldly uh, schisms by your worldly way of thinking. So divisions in the church. The saints in Corinth were creating these schisms, these, these separations in the church over whether they were aligned with one teacher or another teacher. 
And after urging unity for unity in the church, Paul then shows them that it is the message of the cross and not the messenger that is of first importance. They were separating over the messenger. And Paul tells them it's not the messenger. It's the message. You need to center and unite on the message. If the messengers are faithfully preaching the message, then it doesn't matter who the messenger is. Right? It matters what the message is they're preaching. That is of prime importance. As long as the Gospel is faithfully preached, it doesn't matter if it's being preached by Paul, Apollos, Cephas, or whoever your favorite radio preacher is, TV preacher, podcast preacher, church preacher, it doesn't matter. As long as the Gospel is being proclaimed. It is the Gospel, the message of the cross that unites. We're not united over teachers. right? Paul says in the previous passage, you were not baptized into My name. I didn't die on the cross for you. All of these things. So it's not me. It's not Apollos. It's not Cephas. It's the message of the cross. And then in verses 18-25, through 25, Paul then gives us a masterful demonstration that the message of the cross, the preaching of the message Christ crucified, is the wisdom and power of God. It's the wisdom and power that brings to nothing the foolishness of the world. The Corinthian church and the Corinthian people and that city that they were living in valued wisdom. They valued human philosophy. But in God's wisdom, in God's providence, He said that the world, through wisdom, did not know God. So for all of the vaunted philosophies that this town uh, cherished, for all the vaunted philosophers and philosophies that the people prized, God in His infinite wisdom and in His providence said, you are not going to find me through those means. So, you know, you can, you can take all the smart people in the world and they are not going to find me through human intervention or through human ingenuity or through human cleverness. The world through wisdom did not and will not know God. Now, in the Jewish segment of Corinth, the Jewish segment of that church, they valued heavenly signs because it was the signs that showed the worth or the uh, authentication of the one speaking the message. But in God's, uh, God gives them the sign of a crucified Messiah, which is a scandal to the Jewish mind. It is a stumbling block to, for, their, for them to think that their Messiah would die cursed on a cross was a stumbling block for them. And the world values wisdom and strength, and God gives them a message that is foolish and weak. A dying and rising God-man, which is an offense to the, the, the Greek mind. But He confounds their wisdom with this message. So now as we head into this passage here this morning, verses 26-31, to Paul continues on this theme of wisdom and foolishness. But instead of focusing on the foolishness of the Gospel message, Paul now focuses on the foolishness of the Corinthians. <laughs> right? So it's no longer the message is foolish to the world. Now he's like, look at yourselves. You guys are foolish in a sense. That's kind of what he says in this passage. Now this passage can be broken down in three ways. Uh, you have it on your handout there. Verse 26 
Paul tells the Corinthians to consider your calling. And then in verses 27 through 29, we see how God uses foolish and weak things to bring to nothing the strong and the mighty. And all of this, as we'll see in verses 30 to 31, is so that we glory in the Lord, boast in the Lord, not in ourselves. Not in ourselves. So let's look now first at verse 26, uh, where Paul tells him to consider your calling. So after considering the message of the cross, Paul now tells and turns to the Corinthian believers. He says to them, see, if you have the New King James, it says see, for see your calling, but you can also say consider your calling in verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. If the message of the cross is foolish to the wise and the mighty of the world, how about individual Christians? That's kind of what Paul is saying here. Now, it might seem as if Paul were insulting his readers. Look at you. No, no wise people here. No mighty people here. No noble people here. Just look at yourselves. Look at yourselves in the mirror and see you're going to see you're foolish, weak, and ignoble. But that's not what he's saying. Paul, is in, he's not insulting them. He's just pointing out a simple fact. If the message of the cross is foolish, then the wise, the mighty, and the noble of the world will not flock to it. They will not flock to it because they will see the message is foolish. And why would I want to align myself with something I see as foolish or something I see as weak? The world wants heroes. The world wants strong messages. The world wants to be considered powerful. We want to be the authors of our own salvation. But the cross says no. And we mentioned it last week. The Gospel destroys all of man's cause for boasting. The Gospel message leaves no room. You can't even get your toe in the door of any kind of human achievement. It leaves no room for human achievement. The Gospel message says you cannot do it. You cannot do anything to save yourself. You need to trust in what Jesus Christ has done in saving you. Remember, you are not the hero in your story of salvation. You are the one in need of saving. As I used last week, you are the damsel in distress. The church of Jesus Christ is the damsel in distress. We are not the knight in shining armor. And that's a story that just doesn't appeal to the wise, the mighty, or the noble. They trust in their own resources for salvation. They trust the wise trust in their wisdom. I can figure this out. I can, I can think my way through this situation. The mighty trust in their strength. And the noble trust in their quality or their character. So when you look at the church of Jesus Christ, what do you see? Again, you see not many wise. You see not many mighty. You see not many noble. In a real sense, we are sort of like the leftovers of society. <laughs> Sorry to burst your bubble. You know, I mean, you know, I, I can't speak for anybody else, but you know, I used to think, you know, too sexy for my shirt kind of a deal. But then you realize you come to the gospel of Jesus Christ and you realize, nope. Not many mighty, not many wise, not many noble birth. We are the leftovers of society. And again, it's not to say 
that the church of Jesus Christ is full of idiots, weaklings, and rubes. Notice where Paul says, not many. He doesn't say not any. He says not many. There are some wise, maybe. Some who are strong. Some who are noble birth. But not many. And it goes back to what we said last week. The message of the cross doesn't appeal to the wise or the mighty because of the apparent scandal or foolishness that is inherent in the message. Now I'm going to turn to a couple passages here. Um, first one is, you, you can turn if you'd like, you don't have to, but the first one is Zephaniah chapter 3. So Zephaniah, Old Testament, near the end of the Old Testament. It's after Zechariah. No, actually it's before, sorry. It's before Haggai, there you go. So Zephaniah chapter 3. Talking about a faithful remnant in verse 12. The prophet says, speaking on behalf of God, I will leave in your midst a weak, or sorry, a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. So there, the remnant will be comprised of a meek and humble people, and they will be the ones who will trust in the Lord. Another passage, uh, you could flip over to Matthew 11. Matthew 11, chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. This is Jesus responding to some of the many occasions in which the religious leaders have um, not listened to his teaching or have misunderstood his teaching or have ascribed to him things that he has not said or done. In chapter, 20, in chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus says, at that time Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things. What things? The things of the kingdom. The things, these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. So here, it's not just that the wise and the mighty and the noble don't respond to the message of the Gospel. It's that the Lord of heaven and earth has hidden these things from the wise and the mighty and the prudent and has revealed them to the babes, the, the outcasts of society, the not many wise, the not many noble, the not many mighty. And again, in John chapter 7, uh, this is Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. And afterwards, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin meet. And Nicodemus, our old buddy from chapter 3, who goes to Jesus at night and has a question on his mind, here he is now as a member of the Sanhedrin. The Jews here, the, the Pharisees, want to kill him. They want to arrest him and kill him. And Nicodemus says... Um, in verse 40, oh, it's a little later, but in verse 47, the officers, this is the officers that they sent to arrest him. So they sent, the, the, the Pharisees sent officers to arrest Jesus. They come back, they came back and said, well, first of all, they don't have Jesus. So the Pharisees are like, why are you empty handed? And the, the, the soldiers say, well, no one ever spoke like this man. 
And then in verse 47 of John chapter 7, the Pharisees answered them and said, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. So here they're saying, look, we are the Pharisees. We are the smart guys. We're the guys with all the theological degrees and the, and the PhDs piled up behind us. And we have not believed in this guy. Are you deceived? And all these people, they don't even know the law. They're accursed because they believe in this man. So again, not many, might, not many mighty, not many wise, not many noble. And again, this, this passage, this last one we just looked at, is particularly poignant because we covered it as we've been going through the Gospel of John. Uh, later on, the Pharisees rebuke Nicodemus just for saying, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? Nicodemus, is, he's not even really necessarily standing up for Jesus. He's really just saying, look, we have procedures in place that we need to follow. And the Pharisees jump down his throat as well. And the Pharisees jump down the soldiers' throats for not bringing Jesus to them. In other words, the Pharisees are like, look, we have not given this man our seal of approval, so you cannot believe in him as a Messiah because we haven't believed in him as the Messiah. You can turn back to 1 Corinthians now. So what does this all suggest? Well, as we'll see in a little bit, this is all done so that God gets the glory, not man. You see, because if many wise and mighty and noble were called, then you'd have a situation where people would be boasting in their wisdom, their strength, and their nobility. And God will have none of that. God is not going to share His glory with another. Now we look at verses 27-29 through about foolish and weak things. And in these verses, we see a range of, or sorry, a a series of purpose clauses. Um, You know, uh, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put the, in order, you know, in order to put the shame, the purpose for that. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised and the things which are not in order to bring to nothing the things that are. So you see these, these purpose statements that give the reason why God has called not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. Now the first thing I want to note in this, the highlight is that in this verse here where you see in verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Who's the one doing the choosing there in that verse? It's God, right? God has chosen. God chooses the foolish things. God chooses the weak things. God chooses the base things, the despised things, the things that are not. God is the subject of the choosing. And we, the foolish, the weak, the despised, the know-nothings, the next-to-nothings, the leftovers, we are the object of God's choosing. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, know this. You chose God because He first chose you. Now this isn't the main thrust of this passage, but it's something that is present in this passage. That God has chosen these things. We see this, we'll see this later in verse 32. But of Him that is of God, you are in Christ Jesus. And I believe the Bible is quite clear on this point. 
Uh, again, some more verses. You can either listen to me read them or you can turn as well. But John chapter 6, we looked at this one as well, quite in detail when we were there. A few verses in John chapter 6. In verse 37 of John chapter 6, this is John or uh, Jesus during uh, the Passover, and he is giving the bread of life discourse after he had just fed the 5,000. And in verse 37, he says to them, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Now, in that, in that verse, you have both God's sovereign choice, all that the Father gives me, but then you also have human responsibility because the one who comes to me, I will not cast out. But here, God chooses, right? God, all, the, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Drop down to verse 44. Again, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So again, you have this, no one is able to come to Christ, or no one is able to come to the Father unless, or no one is able to come to Jesus unless the Father who sent Jesus draws that person to him. And you can flip over to verse 65. And again, he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. So in the same discourse, Jesus says three times, no one can come to me. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father grants it to him. You can look also in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 talks about this as well. In the opening verses of Ephesians chapter 1, after Paul greets them, in really in verses 3 through 14, which uh, you may have heard this before. In the original Greek is one big long run-on sentence. Paul was not a fan of punctuation, apparently. Uh, one big long run-on sentence in the Greek. Um, thankfully, our English translations put punctuation and, and periods and commas so you can catch your breath. But here he's talking about redemption in eternity past, where he says, Blessed be the God and Father, verse 3, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He, that is God, chose us, the church, in Him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace by which He made us accepted in the Beloved." You can pause or take a breath because, again, it's one long run-on sentence there. But, again, you have this, right? God chose us in Christ. And then, in, you know, I'm not going to turn there, but verse John, uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 says that we love Him because He first loved us. Right? We don't love God unless He has first shed His love in our hearts as well. So God chose us. And because of this act of sovereign grace and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, we can respond to the call of the Gospel with faith and repentance. It is because of this that we can respond to the Gospel. And the purpose of God choosing the foolish things of the world and the weak things of the world is to put to shame the wise and the mighty. 
And that phrase there, put to shame, translates one word in the Greek, kataraskuno, which means to dishonor, to disgrace, to make ashamed. So God uses foolish things. God uses weak things to shame the wise and the mighty. You can think of, just think of God's sort of upside down way of doing things in the kingdom. Uh, again, flip over. Sorry, I have you guys flipping over so much, but flip over to Matthew chapter twenty, because I want to read this one in in depth here a little bit. Matthew chapter twenty. God has sort of a from the human from a worldly perspective, God has a backwards economy. Okay, God has a backwards way of doing things from the human perspective. It's right for God's way. It's just we have a bad way of understanding how God is doing these things. But this is a very popular uh, parable um, in Matthew 20, the parable of the vineyard workers. And here, I'm going to start just in the last verse of chapter 19 because Jesus says there, but many who are first will be last and the last first. That's the principle. That is the kingdom principle. And this parable illustrates that because at the end of the parable, he says the same thing. So you've got this sort of many will be uh, many who are first will be last, and the last first sort of sandwich this parable here. And then he goes on in chapter 20, for the kingdom of heaven is like. So again, here Jesus is describing what life in the kingdom is like. The kingdom of heaven is like this. A landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Again, he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one hired us. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. So when the evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his stewards, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, each, uh, they each received a denarius. Now I can just imagine if you're the ones who started working at the beginning of the day, you're thinking, wow, they got a denarius? How much am I going to get? I've been here all day doing work, laboring hard. If they got a denarius, I'm going to get at least five denarii, right? Verse 10, but when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. God, that's not fair. What do you mean? And when they had received it, they complained to the landowner, saying, these last men have only worked one hour and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. That's the worldly way of thinking, right? Look at what I've done, God. Look at that person over there. They were a, a, a drunk, drug-abusing, wife-beating, vile, nasty sinner, and then they come to faith later in life and they go to heaven too? I should be in a better heaven because I've been a Christian my entire life. But he answered and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? God looks at the contract that he made with them. It's like, I hired you for a denarius. You agreed to that. 
And he says, take that, what is yours, and go your way. I wish, again, this is the landowner's generosity, the landowner's graciousness, I wish to give this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what, is, what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. For many are called, but few are chosen. That's God's upside-down way of thinking in the kingdom. His economy does not match our worldly wisdom. The last are first. The first are last. The whole parable is sandwiched between those two statements on the nature of the kingdom. You can flip over to Luke chapter 18 for another parable that kind of shows you the upside-down way of doing things in the kingdom. And in chapter 18, verse 9, Jesus says, well, Luke the writer says, and he spoke, Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. So here, Luke actually gives us the reason why Jesus tells this parable. He told this parable to certain people who trusted in themselves. That kind of sounds like 1 Corinthians, right? The mighty, the wise, the noble. They trusted in themselves. And they despise the others. They despise the not many wise. They despise the not many noble, the not many mighty. Verse 10, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. You have to read it in that voice, right? Kind of snooty. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I am not an extortioner, unjust, adulterous, or even as this tax collector, this poor schmuck over here next to me. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector is standing afar off. He wouldn't even stand. He didn't want to stand next to this guy. Not because he was a pompous idiot, but because he just didn't feel worthy enough to be near anybody. So he's standing afar off. The tax collector would not even raise his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Again, that's the principle of the kingdom. The last will be first, the first will be last. The humble who, those who exalt themselves are going to be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be ex- exalted. The point, of the, king, the point being the kingdom of God will be populated by many people you'd never expect to see there. The weak, the foolish, the tax collectors, the despised. You know, I think again of Luke chapter 15, we're not going to turn there, but again, Jesus tells the parable to people who were grumbling and complaining because Jesus was spending his time with tax collectors and sinners, right? <laughs> Jesus spent his time with people you, you, know, you probably see in a dive bar off on the highway away from town. Those are the people he hung out with. He did not go to the religious centers and argue with the theologians of the day. He would rather spend his time with the weak and the foolish. It is God's divine and sovereign purpose to shame the mighty and the wise things of the world with the weak and the foolish things. And again, consider what we saw last week in verse 19, right? Where he quotes from Isaiah 29, 14. It says, 
God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. How does God destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent? By choosing the weak and foolish things of the world. All of the things the world values are things God puts to shame. Similarly, all the things that the world despises, that's what God chooses for the highest honor. And that's why Paul can say in verse 29 that no flesh should glory in His presence. Again, God will not share His glory with another. There will be no boasting on the last day. There's going to be no one in heaven who's going to be there and say, look at me, I got here. I climbed the mountain. I did it. I'm in heaven. And I could tell you how I got here. Follow my five easy steps on how to get to heaven. And you two can get... No one is going to be there in heaven saying that. They're all going to be saying, it's like, I'm surprised to be here. <laughs> I, I would be the last person you would think would be in heaven. But God chooses the weak and the foolish to despise the mighty. And the reason there will be no boasting in heaven as we look at our final point in verses 30 and 31, there will be no boasting in ourselves can be found in verse 30. But of Him, of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Again, highlighting the agency of God in our salvation, Paul stresses that it is of Him, that is, it is of God that we are in Christ Jesus. Remember, God chose us, as Paul says in Ephesians, God chose us in Him, in Christ. God chose us to be in union with Christ. Before any of us were born, before the world was even created, we were chosen by God the Father to be in union with God the Son. And this is the concept of union with Christ. It is through our union with Christ that we receive all of the benefits of salvation. I made this reference before and I got some Pez candy from Lyndon on it, but Jesus Christ... We sometimes look at Jesus Christ as a Pez dispenser of all the blessings of salvation, but it is not come to Jesus and get the benefits. It is Jesus is the benefits, right? He's not the one that dispenses the benefits. He is the benefit. He is the pearl of great price. We are in union with Him and we receive all the benefits of our salvation through that union. As Paul says again in Ephesians, we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. And it's because of this glorious union with Christ that Christ then becomes for us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification or holiness and redemption. Let's look at these a little bit in detail separately. Uh, first, Christ becomes our wisdom. He becomes to us or for us our wisdom. And we looked at this last week in relation to verse 24, but in Colossians 2.3 we see that Paul says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So how many of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ? All of them. All of them. And we are in union with Him. Christ has all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and so do we by virtue of our union with Christ. And because of our union with Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit who illuminates the, the, the Scriptures for us, we are wiser than the wisest in the world. Remember, I said I would take 
a person with a high school education who has a firm grasp on the Bible over any of the PhDs in the world. Any day of the week. Seven days, I'll take them twice on Sundays as well. Christ becomes for us our righteousness. Our righteousness. We are righteous in Christ because His righteousness is imputed or applied to us by faith. One of my favorite verses on this is 2 Corinthians 5.21. We are made the righteousness of Christ and Christ is made... He became sin for us, right? Christ became sin for us so that we can become the righteousness of God in Him. This is the great exchange. Jesus takes all of our sin and He gives us all of His righteousness. I don't know about you, but I think that's a pretty good deal. Who here thinks that's, a, that's an amazing deal? That's a, that's a stupendous deal. You get all my sin, Jesus. I get all your righteousness. So when Jesus is there on the cross being condemned, He's not being condemned for His own sin. He is standing in our place. So He is basically our stand-in. And we are judged because our sin is put on Christ's shoulders. And then when, Jesus, when God looks at us, because we are clothed now in the perfect righteousness of Christ, God doesn't look at us and see sinner. He sees righteous in Christ. The great exchange. Our sin to Him. His righteousness to us. But Christ also becomes for us our sanctification. Right? Uh, in John chapter 17, we have that verse right up there on the back wall there, right? Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. We are sanctified. We are consecrated. We are set apart by Christ. And we are also then being sanctified by His Holy Spirit. But I think the thrust here is that the sanctification is what theologians often call definitive sanctification as opposed to progressive sanctification. It is the sense that in Christ we are sanctified. We are set apart. We are holy. That's why Paul in all of his letters can say to the saints of this town or to the saints of that town because they are saints. Not because they're holy in themselves. They are saints because they are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Set apart. Consecrated for His purposes. In verse 11 of chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, Paul, again speaking to them, says, And such were some of you. Before that, he says, Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. This is verse 9. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers. Basically, you know, a rogues gallery there. No one who is like that will be in the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on and says, and such were some of you. You were like this. <laughs> you know, maybe not all of them all wrapped up in one person, but you were like this. But, that's my favorite word in the Bible, right? I've mentioned that before. But, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And then finally, Christ becomes for us our redemption. We are redeemed. We are purchased out of slavery by Christ. And the price was His blood. Romans 3.24 says that. Ephesians 1.7 says that. We are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Christ shed His blood to pay our sin debt. 
Just like in the Old Testament sacrifices, the animal was killed. The shedding of blood is necessary for the forgiveness of sins. So the animal who was there in place of the sinner was killed. But the problem was, of course, as we learn from the book of Hebrews, is that the animal is not enough. You have to keep sacrificing animals day after day, year after year, decade after decade. You have to keep doing it because the blood of bulls and goats cannot satisfy fully the price of sin, which is why all of those sacrifices pointed to the perfect once-for-all-time sacrifice that Jesus Christ Himself performed. Shedding His blood, redeeming us from our sins, and redeeming us from slavery to sin. So God unites us to Christ, and Christ becomes for us our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. So now I have to ask you, if that's the case, then where is our boasting? In what can we boast? Can we boast even a little? Not, not even a smidgen? Not even a little bit? <laughs> like, yay. <laughs> no, there is no boasting for us. There is none. There is no reason in ourselves to boast. That's why Paul says in verse 31 that it, as it is written, quoting Scripture again, Jeremiah 9.23, I believe, um, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. If you're going to boast, boast in the Lord and in the work that He's done for you. Boast in that. That's what you should boast for. Not in ourselves. God has done it all, so we boast in Him and in Him alone. And as I said before, no one is going to be in heaven saying, I got here, I did it. You know, even, even you, you can't even say, it's like, okay, well, God did 99.9% .9 of the work, but man... I'm telling you, that 0.1% that was vital. And I did it. And I got here because of that little bit. God took me all the way to the goal line. I'm on the one-inch line. But then I, got, I took the ball and I punched it in and I scored the touchdown. No. Not even that. Not even that. And that's why one of the solas of the Reformation, the last one, is soli deo gloria. Right? In God alone, or to God alone, be the glory as it should be. Well, next week, Lord willing, we will begin chapter 2.